Numbers chapter 11. Uh, so if you can turn, turn there with me. Um, I think we've already mentioned our, our pastor, if you're visiting here with us this morning, our pastor is on vacation. Uh, so uh, I feel so privileged to be able to come here uh, week in and week out and hear the pastor uh, expound God's word. Uh, so, so much, uh, appreciate him so much. Look forward to him coming back. Uh, so if you are visiting with us this morning, please be sure to come back next week uh, to hear uh, Pastor Mark. Uh, but this morning, you're stuck, stuck with me. Uh, we are going to look at Numbers 11. I forgot to look at what page that was in your, in your pew Bible. Sorry about that. What is that? 170, uh, 178, did I hear? 178. <clears throat> uh, so as you turn there, just have that ready. We're going we're gonna to read uh, the whole chapter. But before we start, I just wanted to, uh, we'll pray, and then, and then we'll get going. Father, we thank you for this word that we heard this morning about Jesus and how he provided what the people needed, provided uh, bread from heaven. We thank you that uh, later he, he explained how he is the bread from heaven. Father, we, we uh, just pray that you would uh, help us as we look this morning to the original uh, bread from heaven that you provided the Israelites in the wilderness uh, in Numbers 11. I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would uh, loosen my tongue, help me to speak your words, and help our hearts to be receptive to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, at the end of uh, the summer, just before I started my first year of college, I participated in a program that my college called a wilderness Wilderness Experience. It was an 18-day camping trip. It was designed, as the website now reads, as a journey into the wilderness that will provide a unique opportunity to experience community, personal growth, and creation. Now, I know that some people think of camping as a way to get away from it all. And Christians often go on wilderness retreats to leave the world behind or spend quality time with God. But my college wilderness experience more closely resembled boot camp than a retreat. You see, in the space of 16 days, we trudged through a muddy bog almost up to our armpits. We bushwhacked seemingly endless miles through mosquito-infested woods. We canoed through lightning storms. We learned to find our way through the wilderness with just a map and a compass. And we went for full th uh, three full days without food and nothing but an army poncho for shelter. We also ran half marathon at the end of it all. And we did all that without access to running water. Translation, for the better part of August, we were soaked to the bone in mud and sweat, and we couldn't shower. We were thirsty and hungry, but we had to boil the water before we could drink it or cook, it with, it, cook with it. And when nature called, the only facilities available to us, to us were a small shovel and the leaves of the local flora. I'll, I'll leave that to your imagination. So why did I voluntarily, mind you, this was not a required activity. Why did I voluntarily participate in this wilderness experience? <clears throat> Maybe a better question is, why did the college run such a program? The concept was really quite simple. It was a test. The test was this. How do you respond when you are separated from modern-day comforts and you are pushed to the edge physically and emotionally? When you're hungry, when you're tired, when conflicts arise between group members, when your instructors leave you on your own and you're not sure where to go, how will you cope? With what resources are you left? From what well will you draw? When adversity strikes you, uh, strikes you, 
and you're out there alone in the wilderness. You know, about 3,500 years ago, the children of Israel set out on a wilderness experience, but it was an experience like no other. For 400 years, Israel had been oppressed as slaves in Egypt. You know the story. The book of Exodus tells us how God raised up Moses to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and speak those words, let my people go. You know how Pharaoh refuses? God sends down plagues on Egypt. Then Pharaoh relents. The children of Israel set out from Egypt. And then Pharaoh has regrets. He musters his army, chases after Israel. God parts the Red Sea so that Israel can escape. And then God brings the waters back back down over the Egyptians on their heads and wipes them all out. And the people are free. But God then brought them into the wilderness to test them. This morning we catch up with the children of Israel about a year into their wilderness experience after God met them on the mountain in Sinai. So now we'll read Numbers 11. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them on the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tiberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were with them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again. And they said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellum. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and they would boil it in the pot and make cakes with it and its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal with thus with me, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit who is upon you and I will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who was among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? 
But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered for them to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, the graves of the craviers, because they, there they buried the people who had been greedy. This is God's word. Thanks for bearing with that long reading. I wanted to give the full full context of, of what we're about to discuss. So it's a little over a year now into this wilderness experience for the children of Israel, and they are not happy. There's, this is no vacation retreat. They're not gathered around the campfire at night listening to an inspirational speaker. They're not waking up to birds sweetly chirping and butterflies fluttering and their neighbors singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay. My, oh my, what a wonderful day. Instead, we find them complaining in verse 1 and weeping, verse 4, verse 10, verse 13. In verse 6, they say something interesting. They say, our appetite is gone. The literal literal word-for-word translation reads, our soul is dried up. The imagery here is that they have wasted away. They are saying that they are dissatisfied uh, and their insides have wasted away to the point that they can't eat anymore. But looking at the text, it seems that the situation is not really that bad. And yet, at the same time, it's much worse. Here's what I mean. First, the situation is not really all that bad. To be fair, yes, they are undergoing hardships. They are living as nomads when they had been accustomed to a more stable agrarian lifestyle. Yes, their diet is limited to manna, this strange flake-like thing that falls with the dew. And no, they don't have fish and cucumbers and melons, like the things they, like they had back in Egypt. But here's the question. Was it really that bad? Had not God provided for their needs? 
and had not he done so miraculously. Yes, your diet is monotonous. It's all manna all the time. But it's not that bad. Tastes, tastes like cakes baked with oil, we read, when you boiled it. Or wafers with honey, as we read in Exodus 16, if you ate it raw. Yes, things are rough, but their basic needs are being met. That's what I mean when I say the situation was not really all that bad. And that's exactly why I say the situation was worse. Consider the condition of the people's hearts. What is their response to God's miraculous and sufficient provision? What do they say? They say, we can't eat this stuff anymore. Our appetite is gone. Our souls are dried up. I think that that last phrase, our souls are dried up, God could have rightly responded, you have said it yourself. Your souls are dried up. I saved you. I carried you. I provided for you. And now I'm testing you. Things may seem rough now, but it's all part of my plan. And this is how you respond. This is how you praise me for my great actions on your behalf. This is how you show gratitude. There is a reason that the anger of the Lord is kindled against the people. There is a reason that he brings down the fiery judgment in verse 1 and a severe plague at the end in verse 33. The situation really is far worse than it appears at first blush. It's not simply that their stomachs are not satisfied with the manna, but that their hearts and souls are not satisfied with the Lord their God. The people's souls truly are dried up. The children of Israel are empty. Something is missing from their hearts. I contend that that something is contentment. And that's how I want to look at this passage this morning, through the lens of what it means to be content. You know, about a month ago, Pastor Mark taught us about joy. Joy, he said, is the overflow of a heart that is satisfied in Jesus. The lack of joy, the weeping, the grumbling, the complaining response of the people here reveals exactly the opposite. If joy is the overflow of a heart satisfied in Jesus, then grumbling and complaining are the putrid vapors wafting up from an empty soul, collapsing in on itself. This morning I want to look underneath the weeping and complaining and into the discontented heart. What's happening here? What dynamic led the people to this state of affairs? What has robbed the Israelites of their contentment? And I also want to look at God's gift of contentment, what it is and how it can be cultivated. And of course, our ultimate goal here is to shift our focus off the Israelites and turn this around on ourselves. We want to ask and answer the question, am I content? Are you content? Are you really and truly content? And if not, how can I be? So first, I want to give a working biblical definition of contentment. Contentment is the sense of wholeness, satisfaction, and peace that comes from the recognition that God has provided all that one needs according to his loving and wise design. Let's unpack that just a bit. First, it's a sense. It's a peace. It's a condition internal to myself. It's a state of mind. In the New Testament, the word that is translated content or contentment is, is the word autarkia or, or autarkes. It's a compound word. The first part comes from the word autos, which you might hear in the word automobile, right? Which means a vehicle that moves itself. And so what the word literally means is self-satisfied or self-sufficient. Contentment then is a state of having enough in oneself, of having sufficient, of being satisfied in oneself. 
We should not let the, the idea that contentment resides within us to detract one iota from the fact that it comes from God, that it depends entirely upon God's grace at work in us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And remember what Jesus told the woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a well springing up to eternal life. That quenching of our thirsty souls is a result of a work of God in us. It's a gift that he gives us. And it leaves us full, content, to the point that we're overflowing. So contentment is an internal state of mind, and it's both a gift of God and the result of the work of God in us. Because this is true, we can also note that contentment exists in our hearts irrespective of the state of the world around me. It does not depend on having what we want or even what we think we need. It does not come from having free fish and cucumbers and melons and onions. In fact, Paul makes it clear that though we may very well find ourselves living in a state of deprivation, that we may be weak or sick or dying, we can still be content. As he says in Philippians 4, 11 through 12, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. The secret is this, Paul says in the next verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we find the important principle that you cannot separate contentment from trust and reliance on the person of Christ and the power of God. But it's a lot easier to define contentment than to possess it. How can we have contentment, true biblical contentment in our lives? I think there's a lot here in Numbers 11, a lot of clues. In considering Moses and the children of Israel's situation and their response to adversity, we can see on, one, on the one hand factors, attitudes, and behaviors that wage war against contentment. I call them contentment killers. And on the other hand, we can also identify factors that strengthen contentment and cause it to grow. I call them contentment cultivators. Let's look then in some detail at what's going on here in Numbers 11. First, let's identify the contentment killers in Numbers 11. These are things that wage war against contentment in our hearts. There are three that jump out at me. Lust, thanklessness, and faithlessness. The bad news is that as we look at these characteristics in Moses and the children of Israel, we probably will start to get a little uncomfortable because we should start to recognize that these contentment killers can be at work in our own hearts. The good news is that there is good news with a capital G, capital N. God has not left us out in this wilderness on our own. And we'll get to the good news after we first look at the bad. So bad news first. The first contentment killer is lust. Verse 4 says that they had greedy desires. The ESV version translates that as they had a strong craving. The literal word-for-word translation is that they desired a desire. The King James, taking into account God's judgment of the people at the end of the chapter, uses the more pejorative phrase, they fell a-lusting. We don't, we don't talk like that anymore. Now, there's not, nothing necessarily wrong with wanting meat to eat, and there's nothing wrong with having a craving. I think we can all sympathize with them to some extent. They're tired of the manna, the monotonous manna. 
Manna, what can you do with it? Manna cakes, manna waffles, manna burgers, manna cotti, <coughs> but manna bread. We can understand. It's grown tedious. They might have a craving for something else. So what's wrong here? The problem is not simply that they're craving some variety in their diet. The problem is that in their cravings, their desires have become lust. Another way of saying that is that they have enshrined their cravings on the thrones of their hearts. I think it's fair to say that their craving for meat became an idol. They had elevated their cravings to a place in their heart that rightfully belongs only to God. We can tell that this is what's happening in the children of Israel because we can see the evidence of how lust has distorted their perception of reality. That's what an idol does. That's what lust does. It distorts our view of reality. It takes center stage and we begin to view everything else through a distorted lens. Here in Numbers 11, we see at least two evidences of this distortion. First, we see the children of Israel lost their fear of God. In verses 1 through 3, there's a short sort of preamble to the story where the people begin to complain, and God judges them by burning the outskirts of the camp. I think this is a warning. Yes, life was tough, but God made it clear he did not approve of a complaining spirit among the people. But the warning goes unheeded. The people are so fixated on their craving for meat that they forgot all about God's perspective. They continue complaining, and they even ratcheted up a few notches. Their lust has blinded their eyes to a lesson they should have learned the first time around. And they are repeating their mistake and complaining again against the Lord. We also see this distorted view of reality in their recollections of life in Egypt. We were well off in Egypt, they say in verse 18. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, verse 5. Fish for free? Fruit and vegetables aplenty? What are they talking about? Don't they remember that when they were back in Egypt, they were paying for these things with their freedom? Don't they remember that the Egyptians appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor? That they compelled them to labor rigorously? And that they made their lives bitter with hard labor? I'm quoting there from Exodus. Had they not cried out to God because of their bondage in Egypt? They've forgotten what life was like in Egypt. They've forgotten how bad things were last time they had their cravings for meat satisfied. Their view of reality has been warped. And this is what lust does to us It makes us lose sight of everything but the object of our desire. We forget the Lord's warnings and we forget what it was really like the last time we had those desires fulfilled. We forget even how great is the Lord's salvation. And And we think, if I could only have what I want, if I could only satisfy my cravings, if only God would grant me my desires, then everything would fall into place. Everything would be rosy. And then I would be content. But in our lust, we forget that we were created by our maker to find our delight in him. I think the whole of scripture cried out this message as I was preparing for for the sermon. It just impressed upon me time and time again. You can go from the beginning, from the creation, where God makes man in his image so that he can have a relationship with him, to the middle, where David sings songs like Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, to the end, where the chosen people of God find their ultimate contentment in him who sits on the throne in the center of all things. And they sing blessing and honor and glory and dominion to him. And God himself lives among them and wipes every tear from their eyes. There's no longer any death or mourning or crying or pain. But lust distorts this worldview. It takes our eyes off this ultimate truth. 
and it kills our contentment. The second contentment, contentment killer, excuse me, is thanklessness. What I mean by thanklessness is a failure to recognize the good that God has provided. But it's more than just a failure to count your blessings, as they say. Thanklessness goes beyond that. It means that we also fail to appreciate those blessings for what they truly are. We fail to internalize the truth that the blessings of God are God's provision for you that are intended to fill you up. We fail to thank God that he, by his divine power, has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, as Peter writes. We fail to recognize that God has given us all that we need to be content. What does such thanklessness look like? You know the old definition of an optimist and a pessimist, right? You show an optimist half a glass of water and he calls it half full, right? You show a pessimist the same glass of water and he calls it half empty. You with me? Yeah? Pessimist says it's half empty. But you give that same half of a glass to a thankless person and he'll say, but I wanted a Diet Coke. Okay. So they don't want what you're giving them, right? They want something else. And here in Numbers 11, we have a complete failure by the people of Israel to recognize God's provision for them and to be thankful. Consider the situation. Here they are traveling through the wilderness. Just the men who are, quote, able to go to war number over half a million. That likely brings their total population to two or three million. And they are a refugee people, homeless, without provision. And God does a miracle to provide for this host. He sends manna. In Exodus 16, we read that the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from you from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp, and the layer of dew evaporated, and behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And some gathered much, and some little. And he who gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. This is truly amazing. Who here would even think about going camping for a single day and not plan ahead for each meal? Here the people face a long journey with nothing to eat, and God provided exactly the amount they needed each day, and twice as much on Friday because he wanted them to observe the Sabbath day of rest. And the provision was not just for one day, one week, one month. At this point, it had been over one year. Think about it, over a year of miraculous provision. And he who gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. But here they are, turning their noses up at God's provision. In fact, in verse 6, they say, in effect, forget about eating this stuff. We don't even want to look at it anymore. They have lost all sense of wonder and appreciation for the miracles God has done for them day after day after day. Their thanklessness has sucked the contentment right out of their lives. So they are thankless for what God has provided, and they are lusting after what he has not, and they are discontent. But there's one more here. The third contentment killer is faithlessness. We can see this expressed in the people's complaints also in Moses' conversation with God and in God's response, right? The people say, why did we ever leave Egypt? And Moses says, I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. 
And when Moses questions God in verse 21 and 22, God says, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Put this all together and what we see is a lack of trust in God. A lack of trust in his plan, in his faithfulness, and in his power. When you get right down to it, the people don't really believe. When they're asking, why did we ever leave Egypt? They don't believe that he's going to fulfill his promise to bring them to the land that he swore to them. They don't really believe that God is going to carry them through the wilderness. Moses was asking about carrying the people himself. They, don't, they think somehow that they're going to have to carry themselves. They don't really think that God has the power to bring his word to pass. And ultimately, I guess they think they're going to die in the wilderness. They have lost faith in God's promises, lost trust in God's wisdom, and lost confidence in his strength. To say it in less gentle terms, they're calling God incompetent, impotent, and they're calling him a liar. Their lack of faith reminds me of a time when, when one of my kids was about a year and a half old. We were visiting with my parents. <clears throat> this particular child was sitting in their high chair, and we had spread out some of those little goldfish crackers uh, over their high chair tray so that he, she, could have a snack. The child was perfectly content eating the crackers one at a time. And then my dad thought he'd have some fun with his grandchild. So he sat down opposite to the child, and with a big grin, he helped himself to a couple of the crackers. Suddenly, the child, all sense of joy gone, reached out and snatched up the crackers by the fistful and started stuffing them into his, her cheeks until there were none left on the tray. Now map this over onto what's going on here in the wilderness of Sinai. God has laid out all the food that his children need. And he's not playing games like my dad was. He's delivered them from slavery and promised them that they will be his people, that he will carry them to a land of milk and honey. And what if God decides to withhold something from them for a time? What if he doesn't give them meat and cucumbers and melons for a year or two? Do they trust that God will leave enough out on the tray to keep them satisfied? Do they understand that God has a huge box of goldfish crackers in his cabinet? And besides that, he has all the fruit and meat you could possibly eat for the foreseeable future in his refrigerator and freezer? Can they sit back in their high chair and trust in their Heavenly Father to provide what, what they needed in the appropriate amounts at the appropriate time? Or are they going to doubt the goodness and wisdom and power of God? Or are they going to lose all sense of contentment and start grasping for more? Those are the three contentment killers here in Numbers 11. Lust, thanklessness, and faithlessness. Do we recognize these same contentment killers at work in our lives? Paul said that these very events were expressly written to teach us in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, and I'm just going to hop, skip, and jump through that. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our, bro our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Have we learned from this example? When adversity strikes, when the wilderness journey of this life seems to be closing in on us, when we lose a job, lose a loved one, suffer illness or disease, how will we respond? How do we respond? Do we remain content in the Lord? Or have we let contentment killers like these that we mentioned 
suck the water out of our cup? Do we start wishing our lives looked more like our neighbors? Have we let greed take a foothold? Have we lusted after things that maybe the Lord has held back? Do we belittle the blessings that God has given? Have we forgotten to be truly thankful for what he has provided? Have we lost sight of his plan for us and his power to accomplish it? When adversity strikes and we let these uh, contentment killers gain a foothold, our contentment starts draining away. And we know it too because we start grumbling and complaining. We find ourselves right there with the children of Israel with our souls dried up. But I promise good news. There is good news. It doesn't have to be that way. In that same passage in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a familiar verse, verse 13. Here Paul says that we are not left on our own to face the trials of life. He tells us the good news that no temptation, and the word translated temptation means trial, time of adversity, a period of testing. So no period of testing, no time of adversity has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tried or tested beyond what you are able. But with the temptation or trial will provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. God has not abandoned us. He has provided a way of escape. What I hope to show next is how God is active in us to provide that way of escape. And I want to encourage us all in the adversities that we face by considering four sources of endurance amidst the trial, four contentment cultivators that the Lord provided the children of Israel during their testing. And before we're done, we'll see how all of these point to Jesus, that God through Jesus fills up our hearts and he cultivates contentment in him, in Christ, that alone is that way of escape that Paul is talking about. So there are four of them. First is the miracle of the manna. We've already talked about that. God met the people's daily needs by sending the manna. The manna was God's daily provision. Think about it. Every night, the children of Israel went to bed knowing with certainty that there would be enough for them to eat the next morning. It wasn't a fluke or coincidence or lucky break. The manna was in God's plan. It was a constant tried and true evidence each and every day that he was their sustenance, that he was sufficient to meet their needs. Despite the adversities, despite being in a strange land, despite not having a place to really call home, despite not having meat or fish or melons or garlic, they could have this confidence that God would supply their needs each and every day. It seems to me this should have been a great boost to their contentment. But Israel missed the significance of this provision. As we mentioned, they became thankless. But are we any different? I'll speak for myself. I'd like to think that if I had that daily evidence that every day God would supply my needs, I'd be content. I'd have nothing to worry about, nothing to complain about. I'd have no cause to stress, no fear of the future, no reason to be grumpy at the kids or short with my wife. I'd be content because I would know that God is going to give me what I need day in and day out. So here's the thing. God has promised to supply my needs. In Matthew 6.34, Jesus tells us, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. And he, goes on, he explains that that's because our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And we are to seek His kingdom and His righteousness, and He will provide what we need. And you know, as I look back over my life, I can see 48 years where day in and day out, the Lord has provided all that I needed. Whether it was food, a job, a place to live, 
patience, mental energy, comfort, rest, you name it, when I asked him, he has provided according to his plan, according to his timing. Of course, like the manna, what the Lord provided may not have been what I wanted or what I thought I needed, but each day he met my needs. Now this doesn't mean that there won't be hard times. doesn't mean that there won't be sadness, struggles, poverty, or disease doesn't mean that no Christian ever dies of sickness or hunger or persecution. Consider the manna. God designed it to be enough to sustain the children of Israel and gave it only until such time as he brought them into the promised land. Likewise, we trust God daily to give us what he deems necessary to sustain us until he calls us home to our promised land, that is heaven. And in the end, we must recognize God has supplied and trust that he will continue to supply all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And knowing that and resting in that, trusting and resting on Jesus on a daily basis is what contentment is about. But the Lord provided much more than manna for the Israelites. I just want to mention three more significant provisions. If we look back in Numbers 10 in verses 33 and 34, there's a few short verses where we see these three um, contentment cultivators summarized. There we read, Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. So those kind of nondescript verses, we see three contentment cultivators right there. And that is the law, the covenant, and the cloud. I want to look briefly at the significance of each one. First, there's the law. People are setting out from the mountain of the Lord and they're carrying with them the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the reason they were at the mountain in the first place was to receive the law from God himself. And in the Ark, they're carrying the two tablets of stone upon which God wrote with his own finger the Ten Commandments. Think about it. The Israelites had God's law, God's own instructions, God's word, spoken and written directly by the Lord himself. Why is this significant? Well, Let me ask you a question. How do we know what's right and wrong? Nowadays, we seem to be told that there's no absolute right and wrong. But if you observe people's actions, you find that there is a law written on their hearts. Who, after all, who really deep down thinks that lying is acceptable? Who really feels good about racism or stealing or lying or murder? It is a profound truth that humans have a conscience that tells us instinctively that there is right and there is wrong even if sometimes we disagree on what is right and what is wrong. And something inside us tells us that we ought to live according to our view of right and wrong. It's exactly as the Apostle Paul puts it, we alternately accuse or defend ourselves in our own thoughts according to this law that's written on our hearts. And in essence, we become a law unto ourselves. But we can't all be right about what's right. So that begs the question, what is really right with a capital R and wrong with a capital W? Well, here come the Israelites. They're carrying with them the very oracles of God. According to Paul, this is a tremendous advantage. Why? Paul says in Romans 3.20 that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, the law is God's revelation of God's very own holy standard. By giving it to the Israelites, God gave them a clear view of what was right with a capital R and wrong with a capital W. And how does this cultivate contentment? Well, first of all, God's law removes all moral uncertainty. 
God said to worship him and worship him only. To the Israelite, that meant that, that he knew who his creator was. He knew who brought him out of slavery and to whom alone worship was due. And he knew that if he worshiped the Lord and the Lord alone, then he could rest assured that he was in the right. He knew that he should not speak the Lord's name in a way that would dishonor God. He knew that he should remember the Sabbath and so on down through the law. He knew what food to eat. He knew what was clean and what was not. He even knew what to do if his ox gored his neighbor's ox. Knowing what is right, it brings civilization to a culture. It brings order to a nation. It brings peace in one's heart. And in the keeping of the law, there's a great sense of contentment. Of course, you might also say that the law could have the opposite effect, that the knowledge of right and wrong brings with it uh, condemnation, not contentment, because it reveals to us all our faults. There's truth in that too. But the law that God gave goes beyond that. The law didn't simply make the Israelites aware of their inability to follow it. It provided a means to approach God for forgiveness when they didn't follow it. The law laid out in detail a system of sacrifices whereby atonement could be made for the people and God would forgive them. This is an even more amazing thing. Not only did God reveal to them what is truly right with a capital R and truly wrong with a capital W, but he provided them with precise instructions on how to seek forgiveness when they got it wrong. So not only did Israel know exactly what it was that the Lord required of them to live rightly, but they also knew exactly what to do when they lived wrongly. They knew how to live in harmony with the creator of the universe. A clear conscience, peace with God. Would that not grow contentment in your heart? Today we have much more of God's instructions than the Israelites had. We have God's full instruction set, if you will. We know that the law that that they had was just the beginning. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law brings awareness of sin so that we can recognize that we have fallen short of God's holy standard and become conscious of our need for our repentance and for God's forgiveness. And now we also have the rest of the story. That is that God, because of his great love with which he loved us, sent his son into the world to become the final and ultimate sacrifice for our sins for all time. And we know that by grace, through faith, we can be forgiven and cleansed. We can have a clear conscience, a clean slate, and peace with God through Jesus Christ. I suggest that if you are looking for contentment, you will find no greater source on the earth than in the pages of God's instruction book, the Bible. So the Israelites, they had the manna. They had the law. But there is more. They also had God's promise. The ark and the law it contained were a constant reminder that God had made a covenant. God had made a promise. What was the promise? Moses mentions it to his brother-in-law back a little bit in Numbers 10, verse 29, where he says, We are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, he says to his brother-in-law, and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. The Lord has promised good concerning Israel. When it comes to being content, to having a sense of wholeness despite facing adversity, shouldn't it help, help us to know that the adversity is temporary? Shouldn't it help us to know there's a purpose behind it? Shouldn't it help us to know that the final outcome depends on God's promise? When God met Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, he made four promises. The first three are, I will deliver Israel from the power of the Egyptians. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with my miracles. And I will grant Israel favor in the sight of Egyptians. 
And when they go, every woman will ask of her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and thus Israel will plunder the Egyptians. By the time we get to Numbers 11, Israel has witnessed God fulfill each and every one of these promises. So Israel knows from firsthand experience that God keeps his promises. But there's one more promise that God made to Moses, that he would bring Israel to a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. Surely the Lord had promised good to Israel, and he had been faithful to fulfill his promises up to this point. Should not Israel have had every confidence that he would fulfill his final promise as well? Should not they have been confident that their wilderness experience was a temporary condition? Should not they have been confident that a beautiful land awaited them at the end of their journey? And should not these facts have been firm ground upon which to rest content in the Lord's care? And you know we have an even better promise, don't we? We know that this life is temporary, and we have been promised an eternal home. As Jesus told his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus has prepared a place for us. We will inherit an unshakable kingdom, as the writer of Hebrews says. We will inherit eternal life. What confidence, what satisfaction, what peace, what profound contentment that should bring to our hearts. If we are following Jesus across the wilderness of this life, what more do we need to know than that our reward is in heaven, that we are storing up treasures there that neither moth nor rust can destroy and that no one can take away, and that Jesus himself is there waiting to welcome us. Fourth and finally, Israelites had the cloud. Exodus 13 tells us that the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. And at his holy mountain, God told the sons of Israel to construct a tabernacle for him so that he might dwell among them. And on the day that the tabernacle was erected, that cloud covered the tabernacle. This, to me, is what should have been the greatest contentment cultivator. They had the manna, they had the law, they had the promise. But here's something greater than all these things. They had the Lord himself. You know, the Hebrew word for tabernacle comes from the root word shakan, which, which means to settle down, to abide, to dwell. The cloud is God himself dwelling with his people. The cloud is God's very presence. Imagine it. At any point in time, if you were to begin to wonder as an Israelite, are we supposed to be here? Does God know what we're going through? Is God going to help us? you had ever had any question, any doubt, any discontent festering within you, all you had to do was look towards the center of the camp, and there it was, God's dwelling presence over the tabernacle. And you could know for certain, God is with us. God is guiding us. We are continually under his care. So no need to be anxious. I can rest content in the knowledge that God himself is with us. And you know, today we have something better. It's not as easy to see as it would be, say, a huge cloud hovering over our church. But did you notice what Moses said in Numbers eleven twenty nine? after God put his spirit on the 70 elders? He said, would that the Lord's people were prophets, all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Well, guess what? The Lord has put his spirit upon us, upon all the people who are in Christ Jesus. 
We have all been baptized in his spirit. In John 14, Jesus says that the spirit abides in those who follow him, that the spirit is with us, that he is our helper, that he is our teacher, and that he will remind us of all the things that the Lord has taught us. And when Jesus tells his disciples that he will send the spirit to be with them, he says in John 14, 27, my peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. And if I may paraphrase, he tells them, I'm going away, but I will come to you. Be content. I am with you. We know that Jesus, God himself, abides in us. We often hear the last part of Hebrews 13:5 quoted, where we read, He himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. But you know, that verse comes within a larger context of an exhortation to live a life fully devoted to Jesus in the midst of the worst kinds of adversity, in the midst of temptations and persecutions. You know what it says immediately before and immediately after? I will never desert you nor forsake you. It says this. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? If God is with us and we know that he is, who or what can be against us? Do we not find contentment in that knowledge that he is with us, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from his love? Okay, I know that's a lot. It's time to pull it all together. We can see all the blessings that Israel had. We see the contentment cultivators that God so graciously built into their, to their lives. We see the manna, which is his provision. We see, see the law, his instructions, his word. We see the covenant, his promise, his faithfulness. And we see the cloud, his very presence. But we also see the contentment killers, the lust that distorted their worldview and led them into idolatry. The thanklessness, which made the miraculous provision of God looked pitiful and loathsome in their sight. And the faithlessness, that lack of trust in God that undervalues his faithfulness and his power. We also saw, saw that when the hard times came, when adversity struck, the contentment killers won out over the contentment cultivators. So what happened and how can we avoid the same pitfall? There's a common theme, I think, that unites these killers. The Bible calls it idolatry. And for our purposes this morning, idolatry is taking God, who is the creator and sustainer and ruler over everything, and putting him as if it were even possible in a little box over here on the shelf. And we take everything else, people, possessions, money, family, health, food, our desires, you name it. We take all these things and we f just fill up our lives with them. So when some problem comes along, and it might be a relatively small problem like catching a cold or getting stuck in traffic. Or it might be a really big problem like being betrayed by a friend or losing a job or having a child walk away from the faith or getting cancer or a well, life is full of really big problems. But when some problem or series of problems comes along, then the problems seem overwhelming because they are making a mess out of all these things that I've placed so much value on and filled up my life with. And so everything looks like a disaster. All semblance of contentment is gone and my soul is dried up. 
Meanwhile, I've got God in that little box over there on the shelf. This is idolatry. We've got everything backwards. God should be what fills our lives, what defines our worldview, what is most precious to us, what really means something to us. And everything else should be in that little box over there on the shelf. It reminds me of something that happened on that wilderness experience that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. It was actually the very first day that we were out on the trail. We had just been organized into our small groups and introduced to our instructors. And our instructors said, let's go for a little jog. Follow us. So we left our packs and we followed them down the trail and into the woods. After a short while, we turned a corner and I noticed the ground was getting a little soft under my feet. Just a few short yards after that, we were in the middle of a bog. We were belt high in watery mud. One of the instructors said something like, pull up a log and have a seat. We're going to have a chat. And that's what we did. We sat with the muck pretty much up to our armpits, and we had a chat. And this is what he said. Look around you. What do you see? Do you see anything interesting or beautiful? Or do you only see muck and mire? Then he drew our attention to some little purple flowers that were floating atop the mud. And he said, your time here in this wilderness is going to be like this bog. There will be dirt and grime. You sure got that right. And sweat and struggle. But there will also be amazing and beautiful things along the way, like these little flowers. But the lesson he was teaching was not just about physical dirt and struggle and natural beauty. He went on to say that God can bring wondrous things even in, and especially in, not-so-wondrous environments. Well, as I've grown older and, and lived more of my life and studied the scriptures some more, this analogy between the bog, our bog encounter and life on this earth has taken on a new and deeper meaning. You see, at the time, I was content to sit in that mucky bog simply because I had expected the unexpected. I had decided that I was up for the challenge, that I was eager to learn what God would show me. After all, I was a good Christian boy. I figured that if I would just hang tough, the Lord would work wondrous things in my life. See, I thought I, I had the right mindset going in. And that's all well and good, having a good attitude as far as it goes. But now I know that it doesn't go far enough. It's more than just having the right mindset. The question is, what is your mind set on? Or better, who is your mind set on? I now understand the bog analogy with a slightly different twist. I've come to see those purple flowers floating there in that bog as a symbol of Jesus. While we, are, while we are in this world, adversity will beset us. Our troubles will loom large. But in the middle of the mess and the muck and the mire, we need to look to Jesus and allow him to fill our view. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things we've talked about. He is the cure for the contentment killers. He's the cure for lust. Our desires should be only for him and for the glory of his name. He's the cure for thanklessness. How can we not be thankful for him who gave himself for us? He's the cure for faithlessness. When we fall at his feet and cry out to him, he helps our unbelief. And Jesus is the true contentment cultivator. He is the fulfillment and the embodiment of all those blessings that the Israelites had then only in part and that we have now in all their fullness. You remember the cloud is not Jesus the radiance of God's glory 
Is he not Emmanuel? Did he not dwell among us? Is he not God's presence with us today? You remember the law. Is not Jesus the very satisfaction of that law? The source of our righteousness as well as our teacher and our example? And Jesus is God's word too. God's law become flesh and given to us. Remember the covenant, the promise. Is not Jesus the very embodiment of God's keeping that promise? Did not God finally bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's seed? Is not Jesus that very seed? And remember the manna. Is Jesus not the true manna that God sent down out of heaven to be our true daily provision? I want to remember what uh, Jesus said in John 6. He said, The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. I, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And then he said something else. He said in in verse 36 of John 6, he said, But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. We have seen him this morning in the scriptures, but do we believe? Do we really believe that Jesus is all we need? Do you truly believe that contentment is in him and in him alone? If you do, it's time to start telling him that. You know that fun expression some people use when they're filling somebody's cup from a pitcher? They say, say when, by which they mean, when I've given you enough, tell me when. Say when, when your cup is full enough. And you know what manna means, don't you? They called it mon in Hebrew, which is from the phrase mon hu, which means, what is it? Initially, I'm sure that they said it in wonderment. They said, what is it? But after a year had gone by, in Numbers 11, they were saying it with disgust. What is it? A believer doesn't look at God's gracious provision. A believer doesn't look at Jesus and say, what? Say, what is this? This is what I need to be content? No. A believer looks at Jesus and says, when? A believer looks at who Jesus is and what he has done for him, and he says, that's enough. Jesus paid it all. Jesus is all I need in this life and the next. Though at times from this side of eternity, he may appear to be just small purple flowers in the middle of an ocean of mud, we need to understand that he is exactly and completely and only all we need for life with God now and for all eternity. I think it's time that we stop saying what to God and start saying when. He has filled our cup to overflowing in the person of Jesus Christ. On this, our very salvation depends. And in this is true contentment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious provision through Jesus Christ for all our needs. You provided the way to heaven. You provided the way through this life. We thank you that day in, day out, you are with us, that you sustain us, that you have patience with us. And we thank you that one day you will bring us uh, into your presence with great joy and that we will be like you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.